You are listening to Cortez Community Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM, and on the World Wide Web at CortezRadio.ca. As always, the opinions expressed in the following program are those of the people expressing them and not necessarily shared by Cortez Radio, its board, staff, volunteers, or membership. This is one in a series of podcasts produced for Cortez Currents about the COVID-19 pandemic, as experienced in different cultures, places, and subcultures around the world. I am Amanda Alfox Gillespie, and in this episode of A Window Onto a Pandemic, I speak with two British Columbians to learn more about what is happening in Guatemala and with their humanitarian project, Project Somos. I first met Heather and Greg, founders of Project Somos, right after immigrating to BC, Canada. I was extraordinarily impressed by their kindness and their determination to a vision of starting a children's village in Guatemala, one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere. At the time, the two were living in a small basement apartment with their dogs, and Heather worked for the folk festival, and Greg worked construction. Despite not having much money or the kind of rich connections I often associate with starting big projects, they were dedicated to developing the skills they'd need to pull off such a vision. In the time I knew them before they moved to Guatemala, Heather took grant writing classes, learned about developing nonprofits in other countries, and traveled to visit other children village models. Greg polished up on his Spanish, his agricultural knowledge, and his construction skills. I watched as they moved doggedly forward, and then, not long after I met them, they located, bought, and moved to the land in Guatemala. Since that time, I've taken my young children to visit Project Somos in Guatemala a number of times, and I fell in love with the country, the people, and the project. The outlook in poor countries like Guatemala is not good during this time. Already poor, often illiterate, and malnourished, I'm worried about the people there and the friends I've met in my years of visiting. And I'm curious as to how Project Somos has changed to meet the needs brought to the forefront by COVID-19. Welcome, Heather and Greg. Hi there. Hi, Amanda. Tell us about Project Somos and what happened with the onset of COVID-19. So my name is Heather Knox, and this is Greg Kemp, my husband. And about 13 years ago, um, we had a vision to start a project in Guatemala, and we've been working on it ever since. Ten years ago, we packed up all our belongings. We had originally lived in Vancouver and East Van. And we packed up all our belongings and drove down here to Guatemala to settle and to begin the the children's village. And that's where we still are now. Over the last 10 years, had close to 500 volunteers come and join us and help us. We took a bare piece of land and now have um, property with an organic farm, 13 buildings. We run off solar. So for those that aren't uh, aware of the demographics or situation in Guatemala, it's a country of... Uh, 15 million people, half are indigenous Mayan, 
we live in a village uh, called Chorobal, that are now about a thousand Kachikel uh, Mayan people. So unfortunately, as well, the demographic is half the country, over 7 million are undernourished, and a percentage of those are malnourished. So it's an ongoing problem in Guatemala as well. Our regular programming includes early childhood education, which is very rare around here. So we have a preschool, a morning preschool, an afternoon preschool, which includes a nutritional program. So we're teaching the kids from farm to table about planting, harvesting, and cooking um, healthy food. And we also do academic support for those in the primary program, a primary public school. Uh, School generally runs eight to noon here. And um, the kids are only going to school about four days a week. So um, after school, we take groups of kids and we provide them with a healthy lunch. And then we do um, academic support, raising their literacy. And if they don't have school for an entire, if they don't have public school for a day, they come here for the entire day. So um, we're really supporting them to move ahead um, because the, the public school has so little resources and the kids just are not getting quality education here. So they have no library. There are no books in the school, which is, includes most of the rural schools in Guatemala. So we've accumulated uh, books in Spanish uh, and English uh, in a small library that we have and that we offer these to the kids. Project almost was slammed pretty hard in March. It started with uh, forest fires that were burning on our lands for um, four days solid, and then a week later for another full day. We had long-term volunteers on the property. We had to evacuate. The kids had to be evacuated. And then when everybody came back, or when the volunteers came back, the COVID restrictions came into place, and we had to ask those long-term volunteers to leave. The kids never got to come back. We had a high school group from Canada booked to come to Project Somos, which is something that we've been doing since we arrived. And 24 hours before their arrival, they canceled on us. We had all this food ready for them, beds made. Um, And we've had to pivot our programming. We no longer can kids come to the project. We initially started a soup kitchen, which was a mobile soup kitchen, delivering food to the kids in our program. And then some nasty person phoned the Ministry of Health and got us shut down because our kitchen wasn't approved. So we now run a food bank. Initially, it was just for the kids in our program, and now it's reaching half of the village population here. And we use our garden quite extensive. We grow quinoa, chia, um, we have kamut, which is a chorus on wheat, and an extensive vegetable garden that we've been harvesting and ramping up for the food bank. So aside from dry goods of beans and rice and other products that we purchase, we also are supplying the local village with fresh produce and fresh baked bread. What has the rest of Guatemala been like since the pandemic hit? The president of Guatemala is, uh, was a practicing doctor, so he had some knowledge of uh, medicine, fortunately. So he imposed pretty strict curfews, uh, travel restrictions, wearing masks in public uh, was mandatory. Uh, so that 
uh, has perhaps slowed the growth of it. The situation in Guatemala now is that it's still a very steep upward curve of uh, cases contracted. Uh, and it's quite concerning because of the way that many, half the population lives. When you, when you live um, in poverty, oftentimes you live with many people in a very small space, dirt floors, hygiene, people don't have, it, the hygiene isn't really good. They don't even have so many of these people. We had one little boy who said, here at Project Somos, you have soap so I can wash my hands and I won't get coronavirus, but at home I can only wash with water. It's like, oh my goodness. And then on top of it, last week uh, we were informed that the local, the village pump had broken and people had been without water for three days. So we're fortunate uh, to have a large cistern where, so we opened our gates and let everybody come and uh, fill their water containers that they needed. And it went on for another four days. They were a week without uh, the community water system. Yeah, and there's families, um, when you travel in Guatemala, you will see women with babies, women with all their children, um, fathers standing on the side of the road waving white flags because the situation is so dire and um, they, the white flag signifies that they are going uh, hungry and then there be, you'll see people with red flags which signifies they don't have the proper medicine. The people in our local village are talking about you know they say we're fine with staying closed in the house but um, and we're more scared that we will die of hunger than we will of contracting coronavirus so it's a it's a really difficult situation for people without public transportation it really shuts down the country and this whole economy that's based on that kind of movement whether it's textiles or agriculture yeah that was a mandated presidential decree that all public transportation was stopped so there were no buses at all so people couldn't bring can't bring their goods to market nor can they even come from our village to the town near us, which is eight kilometers away, to go purchase food. So if they want to go there, they either go with someone that has a private vehicle or they have to walk. And there's no real government support. Um, Through the public schools, they're delivering packages to families every two months with about $2 worth of food in that package. And to give it a, a comparison, we're paying providing about $30 worth of um, products to a family of five. So that would help them get through a week of eating. So the unfortunate thing is that if you're involved in the informal economy, if you're a day laborer or you're a street vendor, which is actually comprises 70% of people in Guatemala, you have no government help unless you have a child in public school for this $2 of food every couple of months. So it's not like in Canada or in the United States where people, if they're are unemployed because of COVID, you're receiving $1,000 a month or a few thousand dollars a month over a number of months. Doesn't happen here. If you, if you don't have family, you're just really flat out of luck. How has Project Somos adapted to meet the changing needs of Guatemalans during the pandemic? So we're feeding about 100 families a week right now. So it equals about 500 individuals. Uh, we can um, receive one representative from each family at the food bank and 
like the restrictions in Canada, you know, you have to have the social distancing, everybody's temperature is taken when they arrive at the project. Um, they, you know, put the disinfectant on their hands, everybody's in the mask. And we have this amazing building. Um, it's our clinic and neighborhood house funded by this wonderful um, donor in Vancouver, Matthew Borditsky. And it's perfectly set up for our food bank. The food actually gets, to, the fresh produce gets delivered to us in a pickup truck in two loads. We do purchases in Guatemala City for some of the other essentials. So people are given time slots and they show up um, we're trying to do zero waste or as close to it as possible. So people have containers that they fill up with oil. They um, have the gunny sacks where the food is put into it. Um, and they bring containers where we fill up things like cooked quinoa and they bring a towel to receive their bread and stuff. So um, it's, you know, we've been doing this for a number of, well, a couple of months now. So we're getting the system systems in place. It's not something we'd ever done before or ever imagined we'd be doing. And our staff has um, really stepped up to the plate and is doing a great job. We have a committee with the local mayor um, and council to approve new candidates. So every week there's a list of people looking for more help. Um, lots of elderly, lots of widows, widowers. What do you see as the impacts of what happens in Canada and the U.S. on Guatemala? Yes, yeah, so the relationship between Canada and Guatemala is an interesting one because Canada has an agricultural immigration program uh, for temporary workers. So they uh, admit Guatemalan workers, I believe there's 7,000 a year that come from Guatemala to work in Quebec, uh, Alberta, and Vancouver. BC. Uh, yeah. The BC area. Yeah, in British Columbia, right. So this has been ongoing for a number of years. In the village where we are, there's dozens of men mm -hmm. that go. Every year they go between three and six months, and then they come back. Um, and they basically, the minimum wage in Canada per hour is the wage that one hour of a Canadian hourly would be a day's wage in Guatemala. So it's quite a good uh, income flow, remittance for Guatemalans, and people line up to do that. The relationship with the United States and Guatemala is a little bit different. There are more people that probably try to enter the United States illegally. They do have some temporary labor programs, agricultural ones, but what you, what you hear and what you read in the media is that there's a lot of illegal migrants. And unfortunately, what's happening now, there are deportees from Guatemala being um, flown back to Guatemala from the United States after being in detention, in prison, really, for perhaps months. Um, and there been a huge spike in COVID. When they get off the plane, Guatemalan officials, health officials test them. And in one flight out of 70 people that were arriving, 50 had COVID. So there's a very unfortunate relationship with the United States that um, the spike in the COVID here does have a relationship to the United States. 
I think the, the cultural and social impact of COVID on Guatemala, I think it hits countries differently. And people here are very afraid. And to a large extent, people are belief-based. So rumors fly around. Uh, the president gives, has been giving uh, weekly addresses and basically kind of upgrading the regulations and restrictions every week and, and is a voice of reason, much like your health minister in British Columbia. Uh, he's calm, he's informed, he's reasonable, in my opinion. But there is a great fear that people have. And in a country like this, where in one hand you can say, yes, the government doesn't support them. And on the other hand, the village that we live in, they're forced to take initiative, forced to be on their own, somewhat autonomous. So this is not a bad thing in itself. But unfortunately, there is no social or economic net that the government provides. So unfortunately, if this goes on for months and months and months further and the lockdown continues in Guatemala, uh, there'll be, it will move from basically moving from people being undernourished to malnourished to a famine. And this is our concern is that um, we're doing what we can to try and keep people healthy. And if a famine is something that happens, then also people's immunity to COVID and other related diseases will decline. Do you see any possible silver linings for you or the project from the pandemic? I think for me, in this moment, the only um, silver lining that I can see is that there's been a rise in awareness around the situation here. Um, we've been sharing the stories of the struggles of people and I don't know, maybe because people are stuck in their home and at their computers more, there seems to be more engagement and more um, willingness to hear the stories and to step up if they can. Um, our organization counts on volunteer groups coming down, raising money and helping build buildings, helping uh, run programs for the kids. That's stopped altogether. Our hope is that it'll rise again, maybe even stronger, but it could go the other way. That maybe there'll be, I don't know, maybe more empathy or more compassion for people. Because I think a lot of people are realizing how good they do have it in first world countries and how difficult it is in the developing countries. At, that, at this point, that's really the only silver lining I can think of. Greg, can you? Heather mentioned about the awareness being built in other places in the world. There's many countries like Guatemala in the same situation, but you know, the, the awareness of the incredible privilege as Canadians, what we have and what we I can speak personally, what I take, took for granted being in Canada, you know, I had an education, I had a, a cert, uh, network of friends and family, I had access to technology, uh, there's a healthcare system, there's an economic social net as well, uh, and when you live and you, we've been here almost 10 years now, and you see how, you know, how fragile the whole infrastructure is, it really makes me appreciate, you know, that privilege in Canada. And what we've always said, you know, people said, well, how did you do what you did over the last years? You know, 13 buildings in 10 years, programming, et cetera, et cetera, organic farm. Well, we leveraged our Canadian privilege. That's really what we did. We didn't start with wealth. We didn't start with anything other than being Canadian. 
and we had a vision and we worked hard and we leveraged our privilege. It's incredible to think that two average Canadians can use their privilege to support over 500 families. As I think of what it means to leverage our North American privilege, I'm reminded of a number of Canadians I've spoken to recently who are receiving CERB or other forms of government support. And some of them have said that for the first time in their lives, they have money to give to the causes they believe in, and they feel compelled to redistribute their privilege in this way. I know your project is funded almost entirely by small donations from Canadians and Americans like you or I. What is a usual year like compared to this year? And as the need continues to grow, are you worried about having enough of these small funders, volunteers, and other supporters to meet these needs? Um, our, our greatest appeal right now um, is to, is we need help to keep this food bank going. We expect we'll probably be doing it until the end of the year. Um, the numbers grow every week. It's costing us about $3,000 each food bank that we do every week. Yeah. And as, as we said, there's more people asking for help. So um, people signing up to become monthly donors is a really great way to provide stability to any nonprofit um, or one-time donation or consider putting a group together and coming to the project in the future. This has been a really amazing and positive way that people have supported the project. And um, we have um, uh, this growing community of phenomenal people that will gather a group of 10 to 16 friends and come down and volunteer at Project Somos for a week. They, um, we host documentary nights. We have this beautiful wood-fired pizza oven. Um, it's just, it's an amazing and magical experience for people who come down here. Um, and we've had singer-songwriters bring their fans. It's just a really amazing way for people to travel and to be of service in the world. And it helps raise awareness about what we're doing because each person that goes back can become an ambassador for the project and speak about the situation. A lot of them become, you know, host their own campaigns to fundraise for the project beyond their visit here. Um, and it's a lot of fun for the kids and the staff to have people visit from other countries. It's the only form of travel they'll really have in their life and it comes to them in in the form of different people from all over the world we also have a long-term volunteer program where people uh, apply um, and we ask for a minimum of six week commitment and they live on site in a volunteer house with others and they participate in the day-to-day -day programming and special projects that are going on they help in our agricultural organic farm yeah, so part of part of the really down to earth part <laughs> is that we occupy. We are the caretakers now of this beautiful piece of property. Uh, we have a vista of eight uh, volcanoes, one of which is active but at a safe distance. Uh, this was inhabited by the Kachikel Maya a thousand years ago, and we found hundreds of obsidian arrowheads on the property. So this was certainly a Mayan settlement where we are. So we feel very privileged and fortunate to be where we are. And when people come and visit, they certainly are able to see the obvious beauty that's here and the history. We have a Mayan ruin 
which was the capital of the Kachikel Empire, which is about uh, five kilometers away from us. And we also put a big emphasis on delicious food and um, can say that it was very Hollyhock inspired um, from our visits to Hollyhock all these years ago and have a couple of the cookbooks. So we make sure that all the people that visit enjoy their meals and are provided with healthy food. And we um, like to say that, you know, we focus as much as possible on a hundred meter diet from our organic farm. And we can also suggest that if people want to assist us in, in their expertise, in their professional uh, knowledge that they have, that they can do that from where they are. Um, there's always things to do online. We have a fund development uh, person that was just uh, came on board to the team. And so things are going to be happening in, in that regard as well. Thank you, Heather. Thank you, Greg, for the incredible work you're doing and for taking the time to share a picture of your project and the situation right now in Guatemala. Oh, well, thank you for taking the time to check in and see how we're doing here. We, we really appreciate and rely on the support of our friends and family in, in Canada and the U.S. You have been listening to Heather Knox and Greg Kemp talk about their humanitarian efforts in Guatemala before and during COVID-19. You may listen to this podcast, the rest of the window onto a pandemic series, and all the other news and podcasts of Cortez Currents at CortezCurrents.ca. This program was funded by a grant from the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the Government of Canada's Local Journalism Initiative. I am Amanda O'Fox Gillespie with Cortez Currents. Goodbye. Shik tu bin, shik tu bin, jo kolkin.